So we are going to be in Judges chapter 4. You can find this on page 203 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read the whole chapter. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight. Uh, sorry, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of, of Lapidoth, Uh, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinuam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak Barak, uh, uh, to Kadesh. And Barak uh, called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaananim, uh, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the, the son of Abinuam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, uh, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harash Hagoim and to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does, the, does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men uh, following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Harasheth Hagaim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with, with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks ask you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. 
And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So there are a variety of ways to tell a story, but a powerful tool for storytelling is to take what people expect to happen and then turn it on its head. Novelists and movie producers love to do twist endings to surprise and delight their audiences, although we can admit they don't always work, and sometimes if they come, they can even get a little repetitive. But the Bible shows that God loves to flip things on their head in order to show us his truth. And he loves to subvert our expectations. For instance, when Samuel the prophet went, to, uh, went in, in search of the first king of Israel, he didn't expect to find him amongst the baggage. But yet, there he found Saul. After Saul's reign began to fall apart, he was sent once again to anoint the next king of Israel and was surprised to find that it was not the biggest and the strongest male of the family, but it was actually the youngest and the most ignored, who was not even in the building at the time. And not, but not only would this uh, you know, overlooked young man uh, become the next king of Israel, he would become the ideal king of Israel, David. And we see this again and again, that the deliverer is not the one that we expect. And it's certainly not the one that we expect in this story. Now, in the book of Judges so far, we have had two cycles of sin, oppression, and deliverance in, the, in Judges. But now we're coming into our third, and we expect the very same thing. Sin, oppression, and deliverance by a judge that God raises up. But God flips all of this on its head and surprises us with how he delivers his people. So tonight we're looking at the story of not just Barak, but Barak and Deborah. And first we will see how God reveals the, uh, the oppression of sin and a Savior. Then we will consider the grand victory that Yahweh brings. And finally, we will consider how God uses mundane providence to deliver his people. So in verses 1 through 10, we see the revealing of, of the oppression of sin and, uh, and we find a Savior in Barak. In verses, uh, one, in verses 1 through 3, we really see the repetitive oppression of sin. And the opening, the opening passage here highlights, says, again Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They did it again. They abandoned God for their idols. They broke his commands. Over and over again in this book, we, we will see this happen to the point or we are tempted to look down mockingly at the Israelites as they sin again and again and again in the same ways. But as soon as we step back, it does not take us long to realize that we are not better than the Israelites. How many times have we wondered in frustration after we have sinned again, done the same thing for the umpteenth time, given into the same temptation, committed the same transgression, wondering if we will ever be free of this in our lifetime. 
The reality is that sin is not exciting as it promises. It's actually uh, terribly boring because of how repetitive it is. Dale Ralph Davison's commentary wrote to, and I, uh, I just, uh, I'm going to quote him at length here. He says, it's difficult to be creative in sin. There's a certain monotony about it. Most all of it has been done before. It is simply that we do the same things again. Sin is a boring routine, not a fresh excitement. The fast lane becomes an old rut. Evil never lends itself to originality. Hence, there are two problems here. The slavery of sin and the staleness of sin. In in time, God brings about an oppressor to force the Israelites to return to him. uh, Jabin, the so-called king of Canaan. Now, there is no official uh, king of Canaan because the Canaanites are not a country. They're not a nation. They're simply kind of a loosely affiliated group of tribes and regional powers. But uh, the idea here then would be that Jabin is one of the most powerful. Uh, Perhaps he is the most powerful in the northern area. Because that's where we're at in the map of Israel. uh, If my arm is the Israel, we're we're in this northern region is where we're spending most of our time uh, uh, in this story. And so so the idea is that Jabin is kind of the the, the king regional power in that area, uh, apart from the Israelites. And uh, he is, uh, and his general is from, uh, lives in the area called Harasheth Hagoim, which means the forests of the nations. And And the power of Sisera is found in his chariots, which number 900, and they are iron chariots, and they would dominate any field of battle that took place on level ground. And, and he oppressed the people, we're told, for 20 years. He oppressed the people of God cruelly. Uh, and, and so now, notes we've gone from eight years of oppression to eight year, 18 years of oppression, and now 20 years of oppression. The lengths of oppression are getting longer in the story. But in the face of this oppression, Yahweh raises up what we can only we can only call a flawed deliverer in verses four through ten. Deborah, a prophetess, literally the Hebrew says a woman prophet, um, calls upon Barak to deliver the people of God. But there is this question of who is the judge in Judges chapter four, and it's debated. Because Deborah is often cited to be, because they said, well, the verb judging, she's saying she was judging Israel at the time, so she's the judge. But the problem is she's never called a judge in the chapter. Even when she identifies herself in her song in chapter 5, she calls herself the mother. But she never calls herself a judge, and she never actually called a judge. Um, but she was rendering judgments um, for Israel in a legal, legal setting. And so, uh, and, and so Deborah is often cited by, um, by progressive folks as an example of why women are meant to hold office in the church, the office of elder or deacon particularly. Um, because if Deborah was a prophetess and a judge, then surely a woman could serve as an elder in the New Testament church, right? And so that's just that's part of the case that they build. But, um, but while we already noted that Deborah did engage in the function of judging Israel... Uh, she did so by proclaiming the word of God and deciding the, the problems that citizens uh, would bring to her. And this was not unheard of as Moses' sister functioned in a similar role. And, uh, and we know that Anna, even in the New Testament, prophesied concerning Christ uh, in the Gospels. 
However, it seems to be overstepping to proclaim her to be the judge of Israel. Not only, as I mentioned, is she never called a judge in this text, in this chapter, or the next chapter, uh, the book of Hebrews, which lists off a bunch of judges right in a row, never mentions her. But guess who he does mention? Barak. So, uh, and so, uh, and so it seems that actually Barak is the judge, but he seems to be delinquent. He seems to be failing in his duty. Um, her interaction with him indicates she, she went and summoned him uh, to her. And the first thing that she says to him is, has not Yahweh commanded you? So the first thing we learn about Barak is that he's already got his marching orders. He's just not doing it. And so she summons him to call him to the carpet, as it were. You know, and so Barak, is there something else that you need to know? Is that what is preventing you from taking your charge uh, and uh, delivering the people of Israel? Why are you dragging your feet? And, uh, and, um, and, and then third, um, Barak says, look, okay, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And Deborah says, okay, that's fine. But she doesn't say that's fine because I am the judge of Israel. She says that because he's doing this thing, which is not necessarily a good thing, that now the glory will not go to him. It's going to go to a woman. It's going to go to someone else. And so um, now we assume that woman is Deborah at the first, but it turns out to be Jael in one of the most brutal takedowns in Scripture, right? Um, but, but, but we note here while, that while the leadership and initiative of Deborah and Jael speaks to their courage and their character positively, but it in turn highlights the delinquency and failure of the male leaders in Israel who seem to be disobedient, apathetic, or cowardly, or maybe all three. So Barak agrees to go since uh, Deborah uh, will go with him, but uh, we see already his glaring character flaw. The word of God is not enough for Barak. Now, how many of us would love to have a direct word from the Lord about the specific battle that we are about to face? I mean, that'd be nice to have the outcome. And I mean, and not just like a general way, not in one of those weird kind of horoscope ways, you know, but where it says, okay, you're going to go over here. You're going to do this and you're going to win. Right. It's <laughs> like, yes, thank you. You know, <laughs> um, and, and, but Barack says, that's not enough. I need more. I need more. Um, there's a, there was a popular devotional that was written uh, in the, the book Jesus Calling. And, and it's not in the introduction anymore. They took it out. But the original author, she wrote at the beginning in her introduction of that book. She said, I know the Bible is great and that it's, it's the word of God, but I need something more than that. And uh, that, there's some obvious problems with that. So the, public, so the, so the publisher just kind of took that out to the, in, in when they started producing more copies. I just want you to take that out of the introduction. <laughs> We're not going to mention that part. But I don't um, now. I don't mean I don't want to be too hard on Barack because um, you know we we probably find ourselves at various times in a similar position. Not that we've had a personalized uh, revelation of God tailored to our particular moment, but we do confess. You know, we confess have the Word of God, and far too often we act as though it's not enough for us. That we need something more. But God is merciful to us as well. God bears patiently with his people, even as he does so with Barak, calling us back again and again to our charge, to his word. Uh, And we do find, in fact, that the word of God is enough. 
Barak here actually echoes the weakness of Moses, who refused to uh, who refused to obey God's call until God, through His patience, uh, appointed Aaron to speak for him. And so the deliverer is found. But we see uh, for that right at the right at the outset that this that there is a real moral defect in the deliverer of Israel. But then this brings us to what we call the grand victory of Yahweh. And we see this in verses 12 through 16, and and then right at the end of the chapter, verses 23 to 24, the little summary statement. And we see here how Yahweh subdues any would-be kings. Uh, Apparently, Barak was known to be the judge of Israel because Sisera hears that Barak has gone to Mount Tabor. And, uh, and so uh, he knows that Mount Tabor is just kind of almost like a rounded top, and then it just goes in this flat plain. And what do you think a guy with 900 chariots sees when he sees a flat plain? He sees victory, right? So he says, sweet, this is awesome for me. And so he goes driving on up there. Come on, chariots, let's take all our guys, let's go on up there. And, uh, and, as, uh, and as he goes up there, Deborah calls upon Barak to act, and Barak takes his 10,000 men down from the mountain, and he pulled those 10,000 10, men from the two, two of the northern tribes. And, uh, and he goes down, and what happens? Well, all of a sudden, Barak disappears, and we read, and Yahweh routed Sisera and all his forces before Barak by the edge of the sword. That's all we're told about what happened in that battle. You're just kind of like the the Bible is as, for as long as it is, it is frustratingly terse in in the details, right? Uh, and uh, now we actually get more details about what actually happened in Deborah's song in chapter five. But we're not going to go there yet because um, I need something to preach about when we get there, so I can't go there. But uh, but what? Um, but you know when when Deborah releases her hit song that no doubt hit the top of the charts. Uh, um, we know here that the author intentionally omits those details and saves them for chapter 5, but instead decides to summarize everything that happened as Yahweh fought the battle. Yahweh won. And he made the enemy general flee for his life, even though he had 900 iron chariots. And so now we should know that this doesn't diminish the victory that Barak achieved by the hand of Yahweh. I already mentioned the book of Hebrews cites the victory that Barak achieves here as an achievement won by faith in the Lord and as an example that we ought to follow. But, uh, but and because for all his flaws, when Barak was called to fight, he did so. And he charged down the hill at 900 chariots that were charging at him, and he won with the Lord's help. He utterly destroyed Sisera's chariots and army by the edge of the sword. And verses 23 to 24 are almost an afterthought as we're reminded that Sisera is not the king that they're fighting against. But, oh yeah, that guy Jabin, what happened to him? And Jabin is the main, uh, the main ruler that is oppressing Israel. But Sisera apparently was his main general. And so once Sisera fell, it was only a matter of time before. And notice it's repeated twice how the king of Canaan stood no chance against the people of Israel when they are led by Yahweh. And so, and so we need to see that it is God who subdues here the would-be kings through his providence, through his providential means. He uses Deborah and, and, Bar- and Barak to accomplish his ends to deliver his people. 
And this really touches on a major theme in the Bible regarding God's relationship to his people. Um, He's described in a variety of ways, but one of the key ways God has described is that Yahweh is the warrior of his people. He is the one who fights for his people. God is the God who covenants a people uh, to himself and fights for them. We see this in the book of Exodus. We see this in the book of Numbers as Israel wanders through the desert and God provides for them and fights for them. We see this in the book of Joshua as they take the land. We see it here in the book of Judges. We will see it in the days that are coming in the days of Saul and David and Solomon as God fights for the people of Israel. We see it um, now we see it kind of wax and wane and kind of more inner, inner, kind of intermittent as Israel divides and progressively abandons the Lord in idolatry and is eventually sent into exile. But, but even there, some of the most exciting and greatest moments of God, God's protection of his people, are recorded in the years leading up to the exile. For instance, in the book of uh, Isaiah, that, that passage is like all this prophecy and all of a sudden there's this narrative about the, the king of Assyria who was coming to threaten. And then the angel comes in and kills a whole mess of Assyrians. I mean, it's just this crazy episode that just interrupts almost the book of Isaiah. And God, as God fights for his people. And God continues to fight for his people even, uh, even when they're in exile. Um, when they begin to rebuild, actually, when they return from exile under and Nehemiah and Ezra. When they're sitting under Persian rule, God protects his people in the book of Ezra. I mean, the book of Esther. And God continues to fight for his people even in the New Testament, most powerfully, when he sends his son Jesus to die for his people that he may give them life, eternal life, and solve the problem of death. Raising that son from the dead, exalting him to the throne from, from which he, his son now rules. Uh, and fights for his people. He continues his reign even today. And so it is no surprise then when we read texts in the book of Revelation that depict God as a warrior defending his people. When we read in Revelation 19 of the son who comes riding on his horse with his robe dripped in blood, the blood of his enemies, and a word of judgment coming from his mouth. His Yahweh is a warrior for his people. It doesn't mean that God's people won't experience suffering or oppression or the consequences of sin. It doesn't mean that her leaders will uh, always be faithful. It does mean that God is gracious and faithful. It means that he will deliver his people. And we see this in no greater way than in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the warrior who fights for his people. First in his death and his resurrection where he destroys the power of sin death and the devil, and then in the end, when he puts all evil and wickedness to an end. And this brings us finally to the saving providence of God uh, in verse 11, verses 17 through 22. And I actually had all these maps and all these things prepped, and I was like, I didn't think about the fact that I was going to be here tonight. <laughs> so I, I was like, images all prepped on my computer. So, uh, but it was, it, it was good. And um, you're reading through the story. And you read the first 10 verses, it's all scintillating reading, it's all really interesting. And then you read verse 11, and you're like, who's Heber the Kenite? And why should I care about this man? And, 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 and visually, we need to think about how odd this is, because the Kenites, I mean, if we've got the map of Israel right here, 
Judah's down here. This is where the Kenites are. The Kenites are Moses' father-in-law's family. They came in and they kind of chopped in with Judah. And so the Kenites are down here, but we're told that Heber was just like, you know what? You always have that one person of family that like, in the family just moves way, way far away, you know? Well, that's what he does. He's just like, I'm out of here. So he just goes up north and she goes really far north uh, up to the northern end of Israel. And so, he's, and so he's up there and that's all the verse says. Um, uh, and so he's just, so the author's just kind of planting that seed and letting us know that uh, this, you know, this, uh, this insignificant, uh, you know, couple, this husband and wife are just kind of shooting up north and uh, just don't worry. We'll come back to them later. Right. Because it's going to be his wife, Jael, who kills Sisera. And so it's because um, it's to the tent of Heber the Kenite that Sisera fled to. And, you know, and, and, and who did he find there? The ever hospitable Jael, right? She had her southern charm on, right? She had, she, she's laying, laying out the welcome mat. And, and so she, she took the opportunity um, to take him out, uh, the enemy who God had delivered into her hands. And, and he had, I mean, they were on, apparently, you know, uh, apparently his folks were on good terms with this, with this, uh, with Heber the Kenite. Uh, but we find out that you can take, uh, a Kenite out of Judah, but he can't take the Judah out of the Kenite. So, uh, so she decided to take him down in defense of Israel. Now, one of the weirdest—it's this—you know—get the thing about this. One of the weirdest features of modern action movies is how women are basically portrayed as men, and it's—it's it's very odd because in order to show how great women are, uh, they, they decide to make them into men because that's how you show how great a woman is—you make her into a man. Right. Instead of like it, it makes no sense. But that's how we are treated in, in, our, in our entertainment by watching 120 pound, you know, 120 pound woman just just flat out punching out 250 pound dudes in one shot and just dispatching them with relative ease. All right. And you're just kind of like, yeah, no. But there's none of that going on here. Uh, Jael uses everything she has as a woman to carry the day. She uh, she lures Sisera in. With her maternal wooing, treating him like a child. She covers him with a blanket. When he asks for water, she gives him a milk, little bit of milk. Help him go to sleep. Uh, he even emasculates himself. It's not as clear as the English. But, uh, but he, he gives her the instructions, which no doubt caused the Israelites to laugh whenever they heard this story. Where he, he basically he literally says, he says, if anyone comes asking if there's a man in this tent, you tell them no. There's no man in this tent. And it's like, yep, nope, there's a sissy in there, but there's no man, right? All right, and so, uh, and so she gives him some milk, helps him to, helps him go to sleep as exhaustion takes over, that, you know, that REM sleep really kicks in, he's really getting those, uh, those good winks in, and, uh, and she takes him out. Now, it's, it's interesting, because if, if, if this were a modern action movie, she would lure him into the tent, and then she would draw a sword, and they would have a sword battle, and then she would she would kill him, right? She would do some twirls and fend him off, and all this. Um, but she can't take out a general; like, she's not going to be able to do that. So what does she do? You know, she's well. She said she lures him in, she knocks him out, and then being a being a woman who's moved around and has taken down tents and set up tents uh, probably for all of her adult life. Guess what? She's pretty handy with a hammer and a stake. Right? She knows how to put a stake in the ground. 
And so, and so she takes her implements and she does the job. It actually reminded me of David. King David, when he go, went to go fight Goliath before he was king, and what did he do? He rejected Saul's armor and sword, and he went and got the sling and the stone. Why? Because he knew how to use those. That's what he had been using. And so she takes her stake and her hammer, and she goes to work, and she smashes the head of the enemy. And the text says that, you know, she, she hit him in the temple, uh, and um, but... Uh, which we which we mean we assume means right here, but I read one argument that says actually the uh, visually the temple would have been the mouth. Um, so either way, it's either a stake in the mouth or a stake in the temple, like on the side of the head. Either way, you're dead. There, there's no coming back from that. You know, is it gruesome? Yes. Did Jael take care of business? You bet she did. Right. Now some have actually criticized Jael. Um, for doing this, stating that while God may have ultimately used her act for the greater good, that her deception, killing a man who was not an immediate threat to her while he slept, was morally wrong. Um, so what do we do to make sense of that? Right? Um, now, uh, for my part, I don't think she did anything wrong. Uh, honestly, uh, I think uh, because one, there is a complete absence in the text of any criticism of Jael. She's literally in the song in chapter 5 where they sing about how she, what she did what she did. Like we have inscripturated praise of Jael. So I'm like, I don't know how you can read that and go, well, the, obviously what she did was bad. <laughs> it's like literally have a song of praise about her actions. And, uh, and, and further, what was she supposed to do with Cicero? Was she supposed to try to overpower him? Was she supposed to, you know, try to tie him up or something like that and just hope that he didn't wake up? Uh, you know, uh, just hope that he slept long enough until someone passed by? Uh, no, she uses what she has at hand to take out the enemy and oppressor of the people of God. And, uh, and we have to be remind ourselves as well, Cicero was not just some innocent coming by taking a nap in her tent and she took him out. Right? This is the enemy general who was certainly a part of the oppressive regime that was cruelly oppressing the people of God for the last two decades. This was not, this was not an innocent man. And so we find in Jael, even as we find in Barak, and, and, and a surprising deliverer. As we consider the impact of the movement, also as we kind of step back and we think about the, the impact of the movement of this Insignificant couple in Israel in Judges chapter four. Who cares about a couple of Kenites moving up to up to northern Israel thousands of years ago? But you know, it got me thinking as we were nearing December and our in our normal Advent celebrations of of the traveling of another insignificant couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the emperor's census. Who cares about some you know young couple moving? You know, and, oh yeah. So so what if she's pregnant? You know that stinks for her, but who cares? Right? What's going on with this insignificant couple? And, and we find out that the Kenites, their movement was not so insignificant for the people of Israel. It actually was the means by which God delivered them. And here we also see that in, in, in Christ and his parents, we see the movement of an insignificant couple brings, brings forth the salvation of the world. We're further reminded that of an unlikely deliverance that came by, uh, came by um, the hand of Jael points us to the unlikely deliverance that comes that came by Christ's own hand, 
and his body and his ministry. I mean, how mundane and silly it must seem to focus on the travels of individuals and couples thousands of years ago, let alone the doings and the travels and the teachings of a carpenter's son for three years in his early 30s before he was killed. But from the mundane, God brings about shocking results and glorious salvation. Jesus is not, the New Testament shows us, is not the deliverer that the people expected. He's not the deliverer his own disciples expected. How can anything good come from Nazareth? He was asked. How can anything saving come from a cross and a tomb? And yet these are the means by which God revealed his great salvation. And we are the, are the beneficiaries, not only of the grand miracles of God, but of his mundane providences that bring about our salvation. In the end, God used Barak, the delinquent judge, Deborah, the prophet woman, and Jael, the housewife, to bring deliverance to his sinful people. And we are reminded not to despise the mundane providence of, providences of God, for by them he brought forth our great salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, to deliver you and I from sin and death. Jesus was not the the, the deliverer that people expected. Unlike Barak, He was not a flawed deliverer. But even today, people, uh, they still have a different view of what a Savior should be and the Savior they want. But Jesus is the Savior we need. He is the Word made flesh who pitched His tent among us. To bring salvation by faith in his name. And so as we consider consider the story here in Judges 4. We need to consider how God is using his providence in our own lives. In the life of the church. to, uh, To continue to further that salvation. And using the mundane providence in our lives to spread the salvation that he has given to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you that. That we have this picture of unexpected salvation. Lord, where you subvert our expectations. Where you, uh, you, you surprise us in, in just ways that we don't expect. How you use the mundane to accomplish the grand and the glorious. And Father, we thank you, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to work your providence in our lives to your great and glorious ends. That you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ. That others would come to faith in Jesus through the gospel. Father, that you would use the ministry of the church. That you would use your people. That you would use the ministry of Christians in this area. For the glory of your name. And to bring forth. Uh, that your, uh, to, to, to continue to spread your grace and your goodness and salvation throughout this area. And Father, we pray that we would not despise your providences. That we would rejoice in them. And then that we would and that we would return praise to you for them. Father, you are good and gracious and you astound us with how you work. And we thank you for your word that teaches us to always give thanks for the gifts that come from your hand, even the ones that we do not expect. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.